Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Learning with the Lion, a community read-through of the Gospel of Mark. Over the summer of 2023, members of the Ligonier community are coming together to walk through a 13-week exploration of Jesus' life, practicing reading the Bible together and asking what it means for everyday life. For more information, visit epiphanyligonier.org mark, where you can also sign up for our companion e-newsletter. I know many of you very well, but I'm guessing among you there's no fans of World Cup soccer in church today. Am I missing that? Do I have that right? Any World Cup soccer fans? Maybe? Okay. Well, um, you should know that I kind of follow the three Lions uh, because I think they're a fun team to follow. And they have really awesome traditions and chants. Three Lions are England's World Cup team, for those of you who don't know. And um, they have this great chant that goes, uh, it's sort of their team anthem, written in 1996, and the song is called It's Coming Home. And so if you go uh, to a World Cup game and you're with the fans of the English football team, you'll hear them chant, it's coming home, it's coming home, it's coming, football's coming home, and you get like tens of thousands of people in a stadium. It's really, really good. And uh, there's more words to it than that, of course, Um, but the problem is, is England has not won the World Cup since 1966. I mean, to put that in perspective, uh, in, in America terms, that's like Cleveland Browns level of failure. Right? Uh, they haven't won in a very long time, and uh, that drought is so severe, even the fans themselves recognize that as, as part of their identity. They're sort of the long-suffering uh, World Cup fans. And so some of the lyrics from the rest of the song go like this. Everyone seems to know the score, but they've seen it all before. They just know, they're so sure, that England's going to throw it all away, going to blow it away, but I know they can play. (laughs) And later on, the the song goes, so many jokes, so many sneers, but all those oh-so-nears wear down on you through the years. It's very English, by the way, uh, to have lyrics in your team anthem about how bad and and frustrating it is to be a fan of the team, but um, that's their song. Right? They're, they're, they're hopeful beyond hope that it's coming home. It's coming home, right? That the, the, the World Cup trophy is coming home to the birthplace of soccer itself in England. And yet they're also aware that their hope is pretty hard fought. Uh, that it's hard to come by. That's part of what it means to be part of the team. Is to wrestle with hope and derision. Derision from the rest of the world who teases you and pokes you and says... You guys are the Cleveland Browns of world soccer, and also we think it's coming home, and we, it's, this is our time. This is our year. Uh, Christians, by the way, have a lot in common with this idea. Uh, the, the English have been waiting for their World Cup since, you know, 1966. We've been waiting for Jesus to come back for what? Almost 2,000 years? <laughs> So, so when we joke about the English and their, their great football chant, I think we can find a lot of relationship with it. Because a core part of the Christian belief, a core part of what it means to be here and to be you and me and to follow Jesus, is to trust Jesus and what he says. That there will be a time when Jesus comes back as God's appointed judge to fix everything that was wrong with the world. 
to deal out perfect justice for all the wrongs that have been done against heaven and against neighbor, for those who follow Jesus and have faith in him, for those who believe what he says, there is forgiveness of those offenses. There is um, a world of without corruption awaiting them, a new heavens and a new earth. And for those who do not ask for forgiveness, who don't take Jesus at his word, they will find themselves lumped in with Satan and all the other forces arrayed against God's good wishes. Um, I, there's fire and brimstone, I hear, involved. It's not doesn't look good. And this is so foundational to what it means to be a Christian. It's part of our creeds, right? Uh, We say it every week. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Uh, If you are a Christian and and you believe in Jesus' death and resurrection, by proxy, you also believe that Jesus is coming back. And that's a key part of understanding our reading today from Mark 13. We've been going through Mark's gospel this year and and last week, um, the summer and last week, we talked about Jesus being in the temple and clearing the temple out and getting into a fight with all the temple leadership. And Jesus sort of tells them all uh, where the cow ate the cabbage, as a friend of mine says. He lays it on and, and, and just, he's so sad at the leadership of the temple in Jerusalem because they're so far gone. And in our reading today, Jesus is talking about how uh, that God knows this and God's not going to do, he's not going to stand by idly and that God's judgment is coming to the temple. And at some point in the future, every stone will be torn down from on top of each other. It will be reduced to rubble and Jerusalem will no longer be the city of God as it, as it has been. So our reading today is four of the disciples coming up to Jesus and saying, so uh, tell us more about this whole uh, destruction of this beautiful city and temple thing. When is it going to happen? And that's the impetus for this longer discourse from Jesus, what the scholars and the Christians of the past have called the Mount Olivet Discourse. Um, there's two things Jesus talks about in our reading. Um, if you've got our email commentary that goes with our reading this week, you know what this is about. There are two things Jesus talks about. There's the immediate concern, which is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And then there's the longer-term concern. There's the concern of Jesus coming back to fix everything. And those two things are, are different, but they're similar. Because Jesus says both of them are God's judgment coming into the world. Uh, Both of them are God fixing things that are broken. But Jesus also says that the temple one is going to happen soon. And he gives a sign and says, here's what you need to look for when the temple is going to, going to, things are going to happen at the temple. But then Jesus also says the other one, the bigger one, Jesus is returning as the son of man riding on the clouds. Yeah, don't, you don't know. We don't know. Only God himself knows. God the Father knows, but the rest of us were on his timeline. And so he goes into our reading and and emphasizes the importance of staying awake. The importance of staying awake. This is a huge theme in our reading, isn't it? Uh, Three times Jesus tells his disciples to be on guard. Three times he tells the disciples to stay awake. Uh, Three times, three more times, he tells his disciples to um, uh, that that uh, that people will be led astray if they're not careful. And so the whole point of the reading today is, is Jesus saying, listen, this, everything is going to come to pass, as I've said. Um, the, the trouble will not be you. Uh, the trouble isn't the thing coming to pass. The trouble is that this world is set up in such a way um, that if we're not careful, we're going to be led astray. And the world will fill us with, ultimate, with alternate hopes and ultimate savior, alternate saviors and the like, and we're going to miss it when it finally comes. So in his reading today, he says, stay awake, be prepared, be on guard. 
Now, I think this is a very important question for our time. What does it mean to be on guard? What does it mean to stay awake? Certainly seems like a like a, a an injunction from Jesus that um, it's a little vague. I'd like some more particulars. And I think it's a very important question for our time. Um, this week in the Atlantic, um, Jason Meteor, um, he wrote about the issue. He's a Christian journalist, and he said, nearly everyone I knew, uh, everyone I grew up with in my childhood church in Lincoln, Nebraska, is no longer a Christian. And that's not unusual. Forty million Americans have stopped attending church in the past 25 years. That's something like 12% of the population. And it represents the largest concentrated change in church attendance in American history. As a Christian, I feel this shift acutely. My wife and I wonder whether the institutions and communities that have helped us preserve our own faith will still exist for our four children, let alone what other grandkids we might have. And I think you know this too. We all know this. Church ain't what it used to be. <laughs> and it's so wild to think that Christians of all shapes and stripes who once professed Jesus as God and took communion and affirmed their belief he was coming back, well, they don't anymore. <laughs> or at least it's not important enough uh, to, to go to church to, to integrate that into their lives. The problem of being led astray is really big in our culture right now. It's impacting tens of millions of people. Millions of people who, to use Jesus' words, uh, they're asleep. They're not on guard. And they're going to miss out on the most important event in their entire lives because of it. When the Bible contrasts being asleep and being awake, the difference isn't a state of consciousness. It's not a state of consciousness. The Bible doesn't say some people are, are awake and some people are unconscious. When Jesus talks about this, whether it's the servant in our reading today or in Matthew's gospel, the parable of the ten bridesmaids, five of them are awake and five of them are asleep, the, the asleep versus awake imagery that Jesus uses has to do with a sense of urgency and importance. The bridesmaids, right? There's five of them who have this sense of urgency and importance. They take their role as bridesmaids seriously. They're prepared, they're awake, they're ready. The, the, the wedding party's been delayed, but they're staying up. And the other five have fallen asleep. They're not prepared. They're not ready. And in our reading today, Jesus says, be like the, the, the doorman who's ready, right? What does the doorman do? He's, he's like the butler. He comes, he opens the door when the master comes and arrives. If the master's not there, what is he going to do? And yet the master says, when I come back, you know, I want to see you. So what does he do? He still has to wait. He still has to be there. There's a sense of importance and urgency to his mission. And so the sleeping that Jesus describes today, it's people who are saying things like, you know what, this Jesus thing is maybe true, but I've got more important things to deal with right now. I've got more important things to deal with. Uh, you know, it's no big deal. I'll deal with it later. Or, and the people who are awake, according to Jesus, are the ones who are like, no, Jesus is coming back. And it's the most important thing in my future. And I'm going to live my life as if he's coming back in the next 15 minutes. Five minutes, one minute. And so there's a sense of urgency of sticking close to Jesus, of, of, of having a lively faith. And, and that's what the dichotomy is really about. And so it's worth asking then what it looks like to be on guard and awake and um, what it might look like to us to keep a sense of urgency around. Um, when Jesus gives us this tagline of, I'll be back, right? He's the Terminator. Jesus says, I'm coming back. What does it look like to be asleep or awake? Well, two thoughts for your consideration this morning. The first is this. Um, something that I think would be helpful 
for all of us in our efforts to stay awake. You know, I remember Julie, was it Julie Andrews in Sound of Music, right? Stay awake, don't fall asleep. I'm going to put you to sleep singing. Um, but there's a sense of, 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 of what does it mean to stay awake? And I think the first thing we do is to make sure we have the correct gospel. We make sure we have the correct gospel. Here's an analogy for you. Many of you know about the Secret Service, right? The Secret Service, what do they do? They guard the president and the vice president and some others. But you know they have another mission that's an even bigger mission than guarding the president. The bigger mission is that they are the federal uh, sort of arm that oversees issues of, of national interest related to counterfeit money. They protect the institution of money. So the Secret Service, right, you know, the black glasses, the earpiece, the suits walking around the president, they do that. But if there's anything in America that has to do with counterfeit money, you call the Secret Service and they come and investigate. And you can go to their website and, and learn more about it and, and you can see all the things that they do, right? So every single claim of counterfeit money, they investigate. They take it very seriously. Um, in the Civil War, the Confederacy, maybe you know this, they actually tried to print Union money and ship it up into the Union uh, to try to destabilize their economy, right? Increase inflation and make things go haywire. The Germans tried the same thing in World War II to, to the UK, to France, and America. And so the Secret Service are the people who are on the front lines of saying, who is counterfeiting the money? Who is doing this? Because it's important to the economy. So the Secret Service takes care of the money, and they train people. They train everyone from store clerks and cashiers to the heads of financial institutions in other countries on what it looks like to have an authentic dollar bill and to not be fooled by counterfeits. And you know what their training says? It's very interesting. They don't go around and train you in every single way that a dollar bill can be counterfeited. They don't say, well, here's one way to do it, here's another way to do it, here's another. There's a hundred different ways you could do it, and here's a list of a hundred ways that this dollar bill could be counterfeited. So study up on each of those and learn each of them, and then when you see it, you'll spot it. That's not how they do it. What they do is they say, we don't need you to learn a hundred different ways. We need you to learn one thing. This is what the original looks like. This is the real deal. If you spend time and you know that this is the right dollar bill, you will spot every single forgery, every single counterfeit bill that has ever come through. And you will know in the future with new techniques when people try to counterfeit things, you'll be so familiar with the original that you can spot a fake coming from a mile away. So we don't need to study anything else. We just need to know the dollar bill, all the safety and security features, all the little quirks, what those little serial numbers mean. The little spider or the owl on a dollar bill hidden in the top right corner. Did you guys know there's like a little spider or an owl up there? No one knows what it is, but it's pretty cool. you got to know all of it. And if you know all of that and you can look at these dollar bills, then you'll be an expert at spotting fakes. I think the same is true for our faith. In this in-between time where we're waiting for Jesus to come back, the way we guard our faith and stay awake and to not be well astray is that we get to know the real thing. We get to know it intimately. The best way to spot someone who would be, who would be trying to lead us astray from God um, is, is to, to spend so much time with God to know his word uh, and, and to know the gospel front and back um, that we can spot it coming. Um, this happened to me a number of years ago, in fact. Um, I, I sort of got, felt like I got lucky here, but there was a popular evangelical preacher in the late 2000s. Don't worry about who he is. He's no longer very relevant to the church. Um, but he had this large megachurch in Michigan and a number of book and DVD series. Um, and a pastor I knew at the time recommended him to me. And he, he, he said, you should try reading this guy. And I did. 
And I picked up a book, took it on vacation with me about reimagining the church and reimagining the faith. And, you know, I was like, all right, well, give it a shot. About two-thirds of the way through the book, he included a chapter on reimagining the virgin birth. And he said, you know, hey, maybe it's possible that the Hebrew means this. Maybe it's possible that this is what the virgin birth, maybe it wasn't actually, you know, uh, conception without, you know, human relations. He, He basically said, you know, you don't need to believe in the virgin birth to be a Christian. And I said, hold on a second. Wait a minute. That's in the creeds. Like, like the virgin birth is like the one of the very few things that all Christians at all times, in all places, throughout history, early church, modern church, everywhere in between, we've all, we don't agree on everything, but we agree on that. Like, that's core to the faith. It's in the creed. And so after vacation, I threw it in a bo- the book uh, in a box to Goodwill and said, eh, this wasn't helpful. Fast forward a few years, the author pastor of the book, he was banished from his church and his denomination. The pastor who recommended the book to me was caught having an affair and dismissed from ministry altogether. (laughs) Neither go to church anymore, in fact. Neither of those pastors, the author or the one who recommended it to me. For whatever reason, they both really got into stand-up comedy, and they do stand-up comedy. I don't know what that's about. I guess when you can't preach from a pulpit, you just stand-up comedy is the closest secular equivalent. Which is to say that that, that, um, it's important to know the real thing because then you can spot the fakes coming. This is why in the vast majority of our services together, maybe like one or two a year, we don't do this, but we're always saying the creeds. After I'm done preaching to you, we're going to say the Nicene Creed, um, and we're going to say it together, and then you can think to yourself, did did that preacher say anything different than the the words of the Nicene Creed? Because if he did, maybe uh, not so trustworthy. Uh, So there's a sense where where we we say this creed and we embed it into our spirits so that we have a very very serious detector of that which is not good for us. So if we're going to be on guard and we're going to stay awake, we've got to know the original gospel, backwards, forwards, upside down, all around. We're going to know the words that God has actually spoken to us by himself, not through any other interpreter. We're going to know the words that God had written down for us. We're going to go back to the promises that Jesus has for us. We're going to go back to the fundamentals of the Christian faith and hold them nearer and dearer than anything else we know of. It's the first thing I say to you today. Know the original so you can spot the fakes. The other thing that we're going to do is we're going to attach ourselves to people to wait with us. We're going to grasp hold to a community of people who are also waiting for Jesus to return so we don't have to navigate all of this by ourselves. It's hard to do it by yourselves. It's hard to wait for something by yourself. Uh, when I was in uh, elementary, oh, excuse me, high school, um, I was riding the bus, it might have been my freshman year, and uh, one day, I was, I was the only kid at my bus stop, and one day I was sitting there at the bus stop, and, you know, starting to wait a little while, and I'm looking at my watch, just, where's the bus, where are we going, what are we doing? I'm sitting there, and I'm, 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 I'm looking for the bus, and I'm thinking, what should I do, like, should I just wait here longer, should I go, I'm sitting there, you know, stirring, and trying to figure out what to do, so I finally say, listen, I'm just going to go back to the house, I'm going to talk to my parents, I'm going to see what's up, and I walk up the street, and I turn the corner, and um, as I turn the corner, I hear that diesel engine coming. I look around and zoop, there goes the bus. <laughs> you know, the one moment, right, that I go to figure something out and stop waiting, the bus comes and they miss me and my parents are mad because now they have to take me to church because I miss the bus. Right, waiting is hard. You get into your head, it gets all messy. It's much, much better to be in a community of people who are waiting with you. 
I mean, this happened to me too, right? Um, this happened to me at a midnight viewing of a particular Star Wars movie a number of years ago. Uh, I know, judge me, please. And uh, I was at a midnight viewing. I was in high school. I had energy then and no kids. And uh, I was watch- waiting for the movie and it was 12.01 and the lights dimmed and the movie started. And about four minutes into this movie and this climactic space battle and the starships are going around and they're shooting the bad guys, the, the movie freezes. <laughs> it literally freezes it stops completely. And this whole movie theater, not an empty seat in the house, completely packed full of nerds are going, oh, man. And they're all, you know, commiserating. Like, I can't believe it. It's midnight. I got to work tomorrow. Uh, right? And so the, the guy comes out. The manager says, hey, it's going to be about a couple of minutes. We're going to start it over from the beginning. Don't worry. Just be pay- Just give us a little bit of time. We have to get a, this file is corrupted. We have to get a new file from the, the distributor. And so we said, okay, fine. Honestly, waiting for that film, it was, it was kind of fun because, you know, the, everyone's joking around, messing around. We commiserate and how, how miserable tomorrow's going to be at work. A couple of nerdy guys with lightsabers get up front and start having a fake lightsaber fight and everyone's cheering them on, right? Super nerdy, super nerdy. But you know what? It went by like that. 20 minutes later, the lights dim and we start the movie over. 20 minutes is not long to wait. Unless you're a Star Wars fan, I guess. But the point of it is is to say that that moment, it, it helped me to see that when we wait with people, it's so much easier. We can commiserate. We don't get lost in our own heads. We don't start doubting ourselves, but we're part of a community of people, and the group of us all together, we're, we're waiting for the same thing with the same hope. And that's one of the ways that we do not get led astray. So we cling to the original gospel. We wait in the midst of community. These are two ways we can practice being on guard and staying awake. Now, let me conclude by sharing this. The study, the one that I mentioned, about 12% of Americans, 40 million Americans, not going to church. Um, That study had more to say about why. This is a big sociology study with some smarty pants people behind it. They did a whole lot of research, and they, they interviewed thousands of people. They said, why did you used to go to church, but now do you not go to church? And for some of them, you know, maybe you're guessing, well, it's the abuse scandals, and, and you'd be right, that, that played a part in it. But it wasn't the real determining factor. It wasn't bad clergy or bad church leadership. That wasn't the main thing. What was the main thing? Um, the, here's what they wrote. The defining problem driving most people to leave is just how American life works in the 21st century. Contemporary America is simply, isn't simply set up to promote mutuality or care or common life. Rather, it's designed to maximize, ready, individual accomplishment as defined by professional and financial success. Such a system leaves precious little time or energy for forms of community that don't contribute to one's own professional life, or as um, one ages, the professional prospects of one's children. Workism reigns in America. And because of it, community in America, religious communities included, um, it's, 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 it's a math problem that doesn't add up. And so what they're saying is, is, is the, the focus in our culture of, of placing the personal accomplishment and financial excess above everything else, and the way our culture organizes itself around those two primary values, that's the real struggle. That's what's leading people astray. And, 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 you know, you can kind of see it, can't you, right? Um, jobs that make people work on the weekends, jobs that require people working 60 or 70 hours a week, uh, careers that require you to travel on the weekends, families driven by to exhaustion by working multiple jobs, trying to raise their kids and pay for all the things that these kids need, quote-unquote, for the future. Um, debt management, keeping up with the Joneses, credit cards, HELOCs. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. 
There's a sense that the whole purpose and the whole way American society is structured is to, to, to achieve personal, individual, financial, and career success. And uh, the, the, the point here, friends, is to say that um, life will never, that kind of life will never make us happy. The social, time, the social scientists tell us that, right? The people who study psychology and human behavior, they say, if you're going to make a top ten list of the things that make human beings happy and fulfilled, um, pr- money isn't on that list. Uh, personal and professional success, not on that list. You know what's going to make you happy? Uh, deep, meaningful personal relationships, uh, a strong community, uh, and um, exercise. <laughs> Those are the three things. Uh, and, and, and they say this whole way we've structured our life, it's, it's counterintuitive. So even from a secular perspective, this is not good. The way we structure everything around success and money and growth and, 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 and esteem. But we don't need social science to tell us that it's not good because we've doubled down on the gospel. We know the real thing. We know the gospel. We've studied the real thing. And so we know, we know more than anyone else, that these things are fleeting. We know what God says about the rat race of our age. We know it's, as Ecclesiastes says, it's all meaningless. Um, you know, my friends who are hospice chaplains often remind people, nobody in their deathbed will ever look up with regret and say, I wish I'd spent more time in the office. I wish I just had a little more money. No one says that. Um, and we know this, right? Because we've been given a greater view of the cosmos through the gospel. We know what it means to follow Jesus, and we know what it means to have eternal life. And in in view of that, worldly success and ambition, I mean, it's dust in the wind. So why would we seek these things out? This is all true, but, but, but it doesn't change the fact that our world is still revolving around professional and financial success. So we need a community of people around us who are going to come together and live differently than the rest of the world. That's hopefully what you find here today people who are less invested in your career success and more uh, interested in just you. People who will love you not because you're a success, but they'll love you when you fail. Um, People who reflect God's love in such a way that you don't need to seek out validation from the rest of the world. And that's what, of course, God gives us through the church, through the fellowship of believers, as our uh, creeds say, the communion of saints. Um, We help each other, we support each other, uh, we welcome any refugee from the rat race society. And so in our reading today, friends, um, it doesn't just outline the challenges of waiting for Jesus' return or laying out the stakes and the warnings. It actually outlines the promises of what will come when Jesus returns. Um, Jesus says over and over again, the stakes are high. Don't give up on the real thing, because if you can wait it out, the benefits will be unlike anything you've ever experienced. Um, Everything uh, that's wrong with the world will be made right, and there's a place for you in paradise to come. So stick with it, because nothing in this world is going to satisfy. We'll have peace and communion with God our Heavenly Father. The scoffers will be silenced. The kings and the rulers of this age will lay down their crowns. And the birth of this new kingdom and the wars and the famines and the oppression that defined the labor pains will all be forgotten. We will wait, but it will not be in vain. As the England fans may remind us, he's coming back. He's coming back. He's coming. Jesus will return. Amen. Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania.